Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Today's lesson is from a series of messages that I preached originally at Grace Bible Church in Warren, Michigan last year for their annual Bible conference. My family and I had a great time of Bible study and fellowship with Pastor Tom Bruchet and the rest of the saints there at Grace Bible Church. And I think you'll find this to be a, an edifying series of lessons as we examine the divine institutions that God lays out in his word, starting right in the very first chapters of the book of Genesis. There, you know, there's different, there's different types of commandments in the Old Testament law, right? Some of them are moral commandments. And, and you realize that the law as a, as a standard of personal righteousness by which somebody might, might try to obtain eternal life, it's, it's impossible. You can't do it. You can't keep the law. But, but the law, you have moral commandments in the law. Not every commandment in the law, not everything that is evil, ought to be a crime under the, under the authority of civil government. Okay, so you think, for instance, of the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, there's the commandment that says, thou shalt not covet. Okay, now to covet is an immoral thing. It's, a, it's disobedience of that commandment. It's, it's immoral to covet. But coveting just by itself is not a crime because just because I covet something you have doesn't mean that I've caused any damage to you where there's a role for civil government to come in and set it right. Now, if my covetousness causes me to steal something from you, now, you know, the, the covetousness was immoral. The stealing is also immoral, but the, but the stealing is also a crime now. Now there is a place for civil government to come in, and since I stole from you, there's a place for civil government to take something away from me and give it back to you to make right what was stolen. Okay? Now, one of the things that we see happening more and more with civil government is instead of it being retributive, instead of it coming in after the fact and, and executing retribution and, and uh, ensuring restitution, what we see is government trying to, trying to stop wrong from committee, being committed in advance. Okay? And, and many of the laws that we are under are that kind of thing. They're trying to, trying to stop it in advance. You think about what, uh, why is there a speed limit on the, on the highway? Um, you know, presumably it's to avoid accidents, uh, avoid loss of life that one person might, might uh, cause to someone else. But you see how that's trying to stop something in advance. It's not coming in after the fact, after there's actually been some, some wrong committed. It's not coming in after the fact and setting it right. It's, it's uh, you know, trying to stop it in advance. And, and what, that, what that usually winds up being is it, 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 it winds up being man kind of thinking he can do better than God. You know, God's justice always was the other way around, but man thinks, well, what if we can stop it from even happening in the first place? And in, in, some, senses, in some sense, what it does is it causes people to be less responsible because you don't have to think about the consequence of your actions. You just have to think about, am I 
obeying the speed limit. You know, I don't have to think about, for some people, driving the speed limit might be actually reckless and dangerous, right? But, um, and for other people, they might be able to drive much, much uh, higher than the speed limit and still be safe. But you see how it, re it removes the personal responsibility. And now it's not my responsibility to make a decision about how fast I can drive. I just have to trust the government has, the, has it right when they say that's what the speed limit ought to be. And that's kind of a, a trivial example, but you see many kinds of, of examples like that. And, and over time, you know, you see that more and more. Um, you realize that the technology is being used now. They have these, these face scanners that can not only determine identity, but they can determine your mood by, by uh, scanning your face. And they, they've started using them in some airports because they think maybe they can pinpoint terrorists by, you know, the computer will flag that person. They look like they're agitated or whatever, and they can keep an, keep an eye on them. Um, it, it may, you know, when you hear about those kinds of things, it, it, uh, you know, when you think about um, movies like The Minority Report and The Department of Pre-Crime, that seems not too far off, right? Um, but but uh, that, all of that really goes far beyond what the role of government is in Scripture, you see? And, and um, so that biblical justice, when you go back into the Old Testament law, now you have these moral commands in some cases that are not something that would be enforceable by civil government. You also have in the Old Testament law uh, a lot of religious ordinances, you know, sacrifices, these kinds of things, which would have no relevance today where the nation of Israel has been set aside and, and the law has been taken away and, and we're under grace uh, and not under law. But when you look at the civil aspects of the Old Testament law, when you look at the parts of the Old Testament law that the government in Israel had the responsibility to enforce, you know, there weren't very many laws. Um, it, you know, we, sometimes we view any kind of any reference back to the Old Testament laws as just the law being this burdensome thing that was just impossible for anybody to, to keep. But you realize that you and I operate under many more civil laws every single day than what the Israelite did back in Old Testament Israel. And those laws, almost, almost every one of them, the, the civil laws that were part of that Old Testament law, were about retribution and about restitution, okay? So, and, and when you, when, you know, people refer to, uh, when, the, when the law talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth as, as, as if that's a very barbaric thing, but it's a very just thing. So under that Old Testament law, if I was guilty of stealing something from you, okay, I didn't, I didn't go to prison. In fact, you know, under the Old Testament law, a, a, a prison sentence, there, there wasn't such thing as a prison sentence for a crime. Uh, the, the sentences were either restitution, corporal punishment, or capital punishment. Now, they might hold somebody in ward in order to, to go to trial, but, you know, how does it make sense if I've stolen something from somebody, how is it just then to take me and, you know, put me in prison for some, some period of time, uh, how does that provide any kind of restitution or, or anything like that? It, it really doesn't. Under the Old Testament law, if I was found guilty of stealing $10 from you, what I had to do is I had to pay you $20. Now that makes up for the $10 I stole, plus 
I caused you the loss of $10. Now I get to experience the loss of $10. You see? Now, in, in some cases, uh, certain things you might steal, it was even triple and, and quadruple restitution because some things have more value than just their, their monetary value. Right? Um, a very just thing. The, the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. What that was about is if I, if I do something that causes you to lose an eye, all right? I've caused you the loss of that eye. Now, I can't restore that eye. There's nothing, nothing I can do to restore that eye. But the law would come in and say, we're going to put out your eye. Now, what would be the effect of that? You know, we have all of these, these health and safety laws that, uh, that businesses have to operate under that are, again, to try and avoid some loss. Now, imagine if that business owner, instead of, instead of uh, having all these regulations, and he, if he doesn't follow the regulation, he has to pay a fine and, and that kind of thing. What if that business owner knew that if his negligence, if he didn't put in proper safeguards, and one of his employees lost an eye or lost a finger or something, that he was going to suffer the same thing? You see, he would take the responsibility, in most cases, to make sure he goes out of the way to, to make sure that's safe. And he wouldn't just put in arbitrary, you know, arbitrary regulations and things. He would really look at every part of his assembly line, make sure it was safe for that employee because he, didn't, he wouldn't want to lose his own eye, right? Um, so it, it's... Now realize also under the law, in all those cases, the victim had some say in what the sentence was. If the victim said, look, I don't want you to have to lose your eye, just pay me this much money and, you know... That's, that's even. The, the victim had that ability. So, so often in our legal system, because we view these crimes, it's, it's almost like the victim is taken out of the way. The victim isn't considered. It's, you know, what's the debt somebody owes to society? But they didn't commit a crime against society. They committed a crime against an individual. Uh, in fact, there, there have been in some places where um, people have set up programs that are, they use the term restorative justice, uh, Chuck Colson, who was in prison himself, uh, Chuck Colson has, you know, worked on on some of these things where they'll they'll work with the court and instead of sending somebody to jail, they do this restorative process. He he told a story in his in his book Restorative Justice about a a young man who had broken into uh, an older couple's apartment and he had stolen some of their things, and I think he probably just took them down to a pawn shop and, and pawned them. And normally what would have happened to him is he might, he might have gotten some jail time, he might have gotten, you know, uh, probation or, or something like that. But they, they worked with the court, and he went through this process where he had to go and meet this couple that he had stolen from. And um, they described to him what these items that he had stolen meant to them. And how this table that he probably went and got a couple dollars for, this was something very important to them. You see, and, and in his case, I, I don't even think they really did any kind of formal restitution. Maybe they did somewhat, but that was something that changed that guy because now he got to see the effects of what he did. If he had gone to prison, you talk to people that have gone to prison, and, and when people go to prison for petty crimes, they go into prison a petty criminal and prison becomes school for criminals because they get to learn from all the other guys, here's, here's what we do. Here's how we get away with that. Here's how, you know, obviously they aren't great at getting away with it if they're there too. But 
There are people that they go into, they go into prison petty criminals and come out hardened criminals. And they come out institutionalized. And rather than being restored, you know, their, their victim isn't restored and they aren't restored either. And, they, you know, some, some small thing that could have, been, could have been dealt with in a much better way, it sets them on a life of hardened criminal activity. All right? We, we can't do better than God. We can't think that, that we can avoid these things better than the system that God set up. And you see, that's, that's where that role of civil government is. Now, when you think of most of what, what government does and, and most of the things that we demand that government do for us, most of it is far outside of that realm of, of justice and restitution. You see? And you can see how... All of these other institutions, rather than, rather than the state respecting a, you know, a, a certain jurisdiction and respecting all of those other institutions, everything is being pulled to that center of the state. You think about what we've, what we've granted to government in the areas of family, for instance. It's no longer a parent's responsibility to teach their children. That's the government's responsibility. Right? Of course, the government is going to teach those children in a way that, that causes them to, to want to give even more power to the state, right? I mean, the state's going to, going to teach those children in their best interest, not in, not in your best interest or the family's best interest, and certainly not anything that's going to be glorifying to God. See, we've ceded that to the state. We've, you know, it's, all, it's pretty much a given that we think that's the response. It's not my responsibility to teach my children. It's not my responsibility to make sure that happens. I pay taxes, therefore the state should do that. We give all of that to the state instead of to, to individuals and, and uh, you know, marriages and families and the church. You see the state more and more intruding upon the church. They, the, uh, the government says these are the things you can preach on and not preach on you know there's certain certain things that might jeopardize uh your tax status before the irs and that kind of thing i'll tell you that largely those threats even today are are toothless threats um we you know every every uh election season the uh a couple of groups the aclu is one of the groups and there's another group that they'll make calls out to churches and they'll say remember you can't you can't talk about anything related to government uh, or you jeopardize your, your tax status. Well, what they don't tell you is there's never been a church in United States history that has lost its tax status, tax exempt status for talking about um, things of, of government and, and politics. Now, the unfortunate thing really is that when you look at a biblical picture of what government ought to be, you in in the you know, in the political sphere, there's nobody really who's standing up for political government. It's not as if, as if there's, you know, one party that wants biblical government and, and another that doesn't. Neither one of them uh, really are, are, have a clear biblical picture of what government ought to be. And um, so, you know, as it describes this power that's, that's given to government here, you know, we have... Probably, probably the freest country on the face of the earth today. Okay, we can look at our government. We see so many things that the government's taken over. Realize, we in our country are fortunate because there's a lot of other places where they're much less free than we are. And 
that is, that is due, it's largely due to the Christian influence and the, the influence of biblical ideas of government on the founders of this country. They, now, not all of the founding fathers were Bible-believing Christians. Many of them were not. Many of the most prominent ones that you think of when I use the term founding fathers were not. Uh, but even, even they had worldviews that had largely been shaped by the Bible. I mean, think about... Think about uh, what the, the culture would be like if we lived in that founding era, if unlike today where, uh, you know, children are taught just completely a, a secular viewpoint in the public schools, most of those founding fathers, whether as adults they were Christians or not, most of them learned to read from the Bible. In many homes, that was the only book that they might have would be the Bible. And, and in fact, you know that... that um, the King James Bible was so prevalent that, that really the King James Bible, in a sense, it, it fixed and set the English language for over 200 years. Because if that's the book you're learning to read from, if that for many people might be the only book you ever read in your life, that's going to have a great influence on, on the language. And um, the, you know, the Bible had such an influence, even in, even in the public schools, they would use something like the New England Primer. And you know, the New England Primer, uh, I have a copy of it, and it often teaches even, you know, even things that are not at all related to the Bible, but it would teach it in, in biblical terms. For instance, uh, in learning the alphabet, they had a little, kind of a little rhyme that went with each, each letter of the alphabet. And um, the, the rhyme for the letter A, when you learn the letter A, you learned in Adam's fall, we sinned all. That was something, you know, large in, in New England. I mean, all the public school ch- children would have learned that. Now, whether you, whether you continued to believe that or whatever, you can understand the influence that that would have. And these, um, these, this founding generation, do you know that in, there, was a, there was a study that was done several years ago. It's called the Lutz-Heinemann Study. It was a study of the political writings of the founding era. And they, they had the founding era being from, I think, 1760 up through 1805, maybe. And this was of the political writings. This was not sermons. This was not, uh, you know, church, church writings or Christian writings. These were the political writings of the founding era. And they wanted to know what were the influences that shaped the political thought. Well, the way you do that is you look at what sources are being quoted in those political writings. Now, by far, the number one source that was quoted in the political writings of that founding era was the Bible. Uh, Interestingly enough, the most quoted book of the Bible was the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if you're talking about matters of law and government, right, and you're trying to apply uh, biblical standards of government, you can see why, why Deuteronomy might be quoted a lot, okay? After the Bible, the, the three sources that were the most quoted were, one was Baron Montesquieu. Now, Montesquieu was a Roman Catholic. Um, he, he wrote, there was, you know, there was a lot of thought going on during that time about matters of, of government. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that you see in both the Catholic and the, and the Protestant writings of that time was if you go back into like into Roman law, for instance, which is pagan law, pagan Roman law, 
they had this concept of natural law. And the Roman concept of natural law was that, you know, just by kind of observing nature, you can observe certain laws and principles. And, and they said that, you know, human law ought to be based on that. Okay, now there's a certain validity to that, but you're very limited in what you can really, you know, what kinds of, of moral type principles you can learn just from observing nature. What, what uh, the, the writers in that founding era, what they were doing is they were redefining natural law, and they were saying natural law isn't just what you can figure out by reason, but natural law is what God's revealed in his word. And, and they said the, the next three sources that were quoted after the Bible were Montesquieu, uh, Sir William Blackstone, and John Locke. All right? now, now, Montesquieu was a Roman Catholic. Blackstone and Locke were Protestants. But all of them, their views about government, were largely shaped by the Bible. And all of them said natural law is the same thing as, as God's revealed will in his word. Sir William Blackstone wrote the commentaries on the laws of England. And you know, England, even today, does a lot of things by tradition, and there's things that are not written down. England today does not have a written constitution. Now, they have certain things that they know are under the, the authority of the queen, certain things under the parliament, right? They all, they all know it, or anybody involved in law knows it, but they don't have it written down in the constitution. Even today, they don't have a written constitution. And, and England had a common law, but it wasn't written down. It was, it was kind of commonly known. But Blackstone took and he systematized that and wrote it down in, in the common law. He often would refer to Scripture as the basis for specific laws in England because England had been so shaped by, by the uh, Protestant Reformation and, and their laws were formed by the Bible. Uh, but Blackstone's commentaries reportedly sold more copies in America than they did in England. Because in England, they had all this tradition. Everybody knew what the law was. In America, people didn't know. And you didn't become a lawyer in America by going to law school. You became a lawyer by reading Blackstone's commentaries. Uh, even, you know, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln, you know, far, far after the founding era, he became a lawyer by studying Blackstone's commentaries. And if you were a lawyer, you had that on your shelf and you consulted it frequently. And again, that idea that, that human law must conform to what God has revealed in his word. You see that over and over again in, in Blackstone. And in Locke, Locke essentially takes um, these things here in, in Romans 13 and other passages and he, he presents sort of a philosophical argument, uh, but largely informed by scripture. And you know what Locke said? Locke started with the individual, just like we started with the individual uh, in talking about volition. And he started with the individual and he said, you know, the individual is created in the image and likeness of God. God has given dignity to every individual and every individual has certain rights. If God has said, thou shalt not kill, that means I have a right not to be killed right? <laughs> you, if, if you're forbidden from killing me, I have a right not to be killed. I have a right to my life. If you're forbidden from stealing from me, then I have a right to my property. Um, if if uh, you're forbidden, you know, any, any of those things that you see in God's law, that, that implies I have a right to certain things. And, and John Locke looked at a passage like this, and he said, you know what the role of government is? What we do is we come together and we choose a government, and the, really the purpose of that government is to defend all of our rights. It's the purpose of that government, if we were just in a state of nature with no government, 
and uh, you killed a family member of mine, I would have a right, really, to go and kill you in return, right? That would be justice. But when we come together and we have a government, what we do is I say, I give up my right to do that because the government's going to do that part of it for me. And that ensures that I don't just act on passion. That ensures that there's processes in place to make sure somebody's really guilty, um, to make sure there's witnesses and, and that kind of thing. And we come together in a social compact, okay? And we ordain government to, to do those things. Now, ultimately, government's power comes from God. They're ordained by God. They have power to do that. And for me to, for me to stand in the way of government doing that, for me to rebel against that, I'm actually rebelling against the power of God. You see, that's the, the power that they have. That's, that's what they've been ordained to do, even to the extent of, of bearing the sword. And this passage here in Romans 13, not only does it lay out the responsibility that we have to be subject to government, but it also lays out limitations on government. When it says that he's a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil, you realize good and evil is not decided by majority vote. It's not decided through a democratic process. Good and evil has been determined by God. And that's what the responsibility of government is. It's to come in. It's to make sure justice is done. And, you know, probably 95% of what all the various levels of, of government do have nothing to do with that. Uh, it's more about controlling and, and you know, controlling people and, and society um, than it is about justice. Realize the answers to the world's problems are not found in government. I hope you understand that. It's not found in government. When you see a problem in society, don't, don't let the first thing in your mind be there ought to be a law. We, we, become so, we talk about grace in the church, but then we, we get out there and we start to think the solution is laws, right? They have laws. Because in doing that, see, we can put the responsibility on somebody else. We can say... Somebody else ought to make a law. Those people in government, they ought to make a law. Why don't they do something? And then I don't have to take responsibility for doing something about it. Right? Don't Train yourself not to think that way. Don't, don't let that first thought be, there ought to be a law. Uh, let the first thought be, what does God's word say about this? Say, what does God's word say? And you realize that, first of all, if we were to... You know, we, we had, I, I would say in the early days of our country, we largely had, not perfectly, but we largely had godly government. You know, if we were to return to that overnight today, you know what would happen? It would get corrupted again, right? Um, the, same, the same process would happen. You, aren't, you don't see any, there aren't any long-term solutions in any of those things. You realize where the solution is. And it's to go out into the world with the word of the gospel, and to let the word of God have its effect, and to see men and women one to Christ, right? Now, as that happens, it transforms all those institutions, right? You start taking the word of God and saying, how does this need to affect my family? How does this need to affect my marriage? How, does it, how should it affect you know, my church and how I, how I worship? And you say, how should it affect government? What kinds of policies should I support and what kinds should I oppose based on the word of God? Right? It transforms all of those things. But, you know, you could, you could convince somebody to follow the Bible with regard to their family and, and uh, um, their, you know, to follow their Bible as far as the, the outward forms of things and yet still have them be lost and on their way to hell. You could convince somebody of the right government policies and have them still be lost. And what, what good is there in that? 
You see, we need to take the word of the gospel out to people and let it let it transform the world around us. Uh, and it and it does that. It does that. You can identify places in history where revivals break out, and it doesn't just affect. You know, you don't just have a bunch of people get saved and nothing else changes. It changes all those institutions. It changes the whole society and the whole culture. And a lot of times we're putting the cart before the horse. We're out here putting all of our effort into, you know, trying to, trying to change what government's doing or, or trying to uh, improve this part of, of uh, you know, what's going on in some individual church or, or whatever. And we're putting all of our effort into that and not putting our effort into getting the gospel out. And it really ought to be the other way around. You know, we ought to be involved in all those areas. We ought to be seeking God's word with regard to all those institutions. But it begins with sharing the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ with individuals, letting them know how they can be saved, how they can be reconciled to God and have eternal life, and it changes everything. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.